following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. We're on the fourth Sunday of Advent, last Sunday before Christmas, and we're doing these snapshots of Jesus. And it was just a way to go through the life of Jesus and look at particular things about him that give us reason to celebrate, because obviously at Christmas we're celebrating his birth, but it's more than just his birth. Because of his birth, we have his life. Because of his life, we have his death. After his death, we have his resurrection. It's the start of a much bigger story. So as I was thinking about this week, uh, about that this week, I decided I wanted to go back and revisit something I did a couple years ago which it's still a snapshot of Jesus, but it's also a big picture view. So let's think of it as a mosaic. We're putting a whole bunch of different pictures together to form something new. If you do not have some notes from the back, you may want some. And you could either go get them or raise your hand, and the ushers have some that they could give you. I'm not going to put it up on the screen because it's a lot to transfer. We're going to go through a story this morning. It's kind of a parable. And this parable is meant to walk us through what it looks like for us to be people who are, as the Bible describes, dead in our trespasses and sins, to Jesus come into our life and heal us and save us and renew us and make something new and glorious out of the mess that we bring him. So if you're visiting this morning, it is rare that I spend the time reading something, so I want you to know this isn't a normal Sunday morning, but what Sunday is really. Um, so yeah, this is story time with Anthony. <laughs> I would have brought milk and cookies for all, but um, I don't think that would work. If you didn't get notes, um, we could probably make some extra copies, but it looks like Mark still has a few. So, Mark, if you just want to set them back there, if, if someone would uh, want some extra ones, we could pick them up. All right, I'm calling this From Shacks to Mansions, a Parable. And we're going to intro it with an image that C.S. Lewis used to describe what this looks like. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew these jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? Well, the explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace because he intends to come and live in it himself. Here's the story. Chapter 1, The Ruins. You live in a broken, run-down house. You've been here as long as you can remember. You know nothing else. For a while, you were able to at least keep it looking nice on the outside, but it's always been falling apart. The landlord seemed like a great guy at first. He allowed you to skip rent. He let you host all the parties you wanted. He even helped fund more than one. Sure, your friends trashed the place, but you trashed theirs, so it all seemed fair in a messed up kind of way. But you slowly realize the landlord's a hard owner. You thought he was your friend, but he isn't. The landlord keeps promising you'll have a better house and a better life if you do just one more thing. Fix the roof, mend some pipes, hang new drywall, repaint, rebuild the foundation that keeps sinking further into that sandy soil. 
But all those things cost money you don't have. So you borrow money from the landlord. Nothing else pans out. You end up spackling over holes in the wall, wrapping duct tape around leaking pipes, but you know the house is going down. It doesn't help that you're really sick. You feel about as run down as your house looks. Maybe it's the asbestos in the walls, or the lead in the paint, or the leaky pipes in the stove, or the fact it smells like sulfur. There's something toxic about this house. It's killing you. But as far as you know, this is all you have. This is the only place to live. You hate the person you've become in this house you've allowed to fall apart. So your house is in ruin. Your life is in shambles. To make things worse, you realize one day that somebody's following you, literally. He's one step behind you everywhere you go. And when you're finally able to catch a glimpse in a mirror, you realize it's you. But it's not just like you. It's a zombie version. You look like one of the walking dead. By the end of the day, he's got a hand on your shoulder. The next morning, he drapes his arms around you and makes you carry him everywhere you go. He stinks. He's dead weight. By the way, I have scripture references in here that you can look up if you want to track with my analogies. You call your landlord hoping he could do something, but he already knew. Yeah, they always show up at my houses. Who is it? It's you. It's just the real you. It's the dead you. Why did it show up just now? Oh, it's always been there. You've been dead for years. You just couldn't see it. There's nothing you can do. The landlord doesn't care. Most of your friends hang out somewhere else, and the ones that show up don't know what you're talking about because they don't see the dead you. They try to help do things like paint the siding that's falling off the side of the house, but it's tough for them to paint because they carry the dead with them too, and they don't even know it. Musical interlude, chapter two. Bring out your dead. The next day, a man walks onto the porch. Bring out your dead, he calls cheerily. You don't watch Monty Python, and you don't get the joke. <laughs> don't I know you? I, I do. You're Mary's boy, right? He nods cheerfully. Why are you asking for the dead? Are you a mortician now? Haven't you been helping your daddy build houses? I have indeed been about my father's business, he agrees cheerfully. But there's more than one kind of house and more than one way to build them. And the bottom line is, I'm here to help you with your housing situation. So what makes you think there's dead here? I could see it from the road. I could smell it on your breath. I hear it in your words. I see it in your eyes. It clings to you like a monstrous burden. This house has killed you. Your landlord cracked the gas lines and installed the asbestos. Your landlord made sure there's no detectors for smoke or gas. He made sure that you owe him so much money that you feel like he owns you. Your landlord likes his tenants dead, but you were meant to be alive, and I can get rid of that body of death and make this house livable. Well, that sounds great, but why should I trust you? Lots of other builders have claimed to be able to help, and none of them got the job done. Most of them made it worse, in fact. Well, why do you think that you even know that the dead lurk around you? You thought you were just tired and sick. That day you first truly saw yourself in the mirror, I was the one who showed you what was real. I was the one who opened your eyes. You needed to know. You can trust me because I bring you truth that will set you free. Well, I don't think you understand. It won't be that easy. 
I'm drowning in debt. I'm dying in my sickness. I am doomed to live here until it collapses or I do. I'm a captive here. I, I do understand, actually. I've been in the neighborhood for a while, and I've got good news. I already paid your debt. The penalty's gone, and the power of your landlord is broken. How did you do that? Well, this time, his gentle smile was also grave. It was costly. But I took your captivity captive. I paid your debt. I'm here to offer you freedom from your landlord and from your dead self. All you have to do is accept it. Why me? I, I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I've done nothing to deserve this. Why not you? I care about you. I seek and I save people in situations that seem hopeless. Plus, I'd kind of like to move into this house. And where I am, there is no room for death and ruin. Well, where would I go if you move into this house? Why would you want to go? You sit quietly for a long time. Your father always said you got what you deserved. He never helped with your house or your health. Your landlord pretended to be your friend while guiding you down a road to death. Your friends trashed your house. And then they'd taken their dead selves to their dead parties on dead-end streets. So you look around at the shambles all around you. You remember the landlord's harsh, condemning voice. You feel the dead weight of your sins, your failures, and your inadequacies on your back. You've never known anyone who seemed to care about you and your life. He offers a new start. He offers a new identity. He offers to make all things new. So finally you whisper, I have no future. I have no hope. Everyone offers me death. There's nowhere else to go. You're the only one who's offered me life. So, yeah, let's do this. I and my house are yours. The man stands up and lifts your dead self off your back and onto his. Well done. You have asked for resurrection, and I will give it. I will get the deed to your house, and when I return, I will show you what life is supposed to look like. You watch him until he's out of sight. It takes a while. He stops and knocks at every house. You wonder what he's going to do with all the dead he takes upon himself as he walks through the town. And then you rest. And when you awake at dawn three days later, everything has changed. Chapter 3. Reorientation. You have a hard time believing the changes. When creditors knock at your door, it's Mary's boy who answers. Now the rain stays outdoors and the plumbing stays in the pipes. Your front door actually latches. It's amazing. But this man, and you've started to call him the rebuilder, he has bigger plans than you realize. He wasn't going to just uncondemn the house and sweep up the garbage. He's planning to turn your shack into a mansion that looks suspiciously like a temple. When he first tells you, you say, awesome, go right ahead. But the rebuilder smiles and he says, oh, not without you. It's our house. We work together. You need to give yourself to this project. So the first thing you do is take an honest assessment of the mess that your house has become. You forgot how many rooms you added, locked rooms, haunted by other dead yous that you had forgotten were even there. The ghost of abused you huddles in one room, running out and clinging to you in unexpected moments. In the next room, no longer innocent you, sits among reminders of how and when childhood slipped away. 
addicted you sits in the middle of needles, bottles, food, and bench shopping purchases, eyes glued to a tiny screen. Greedy you keeps trying to expand the room where you first learned to trample on and consume others. Angry you still punches holes in the wall of his room and watches the fear grow in the eyes of others. In the room of mouthy you, you first learned that words can manipulate and control and wound, and you liked it. But the room of never good enough you, that's the largest and the oldest, and the walls are covered with photos of family and friends. It's a shameful tour for you, but the rebuilder doesn't seem shocked. He keeps an arm around you as you walk. He lifts your chin up when your shame overwhelms you. When you're done, he says, has anyone ever killed a fatted calf for you? What? Uh, no. Well, then it's about time. This deserves a celebration. What? This? And you point at the hallway with so many dead you rooms. This deserves a celebration? No, not that. You were lost, now you're found. You were dead and now you're alive. This deserves a celebration. Something barbecued and maybe even deep fried and with an onion blossom of some sort. <laughs> and we're going shopping because the living do not wear the clothes of the dead. So you don't argue. Despite your feelings of inadequacy, this is something you feel it's important to accept because no one's ever celebrated you before. Chapter 4, Rebuilding. When it's time to get to work, you've got nothing to offer once again, but the man is ready for that too. He gives you a blueprint and all the tools that you need. He gives you a fund to draw from for building materials, expert advice, and help. Since he's the architect, designer, builder, and inspector, he'll be available every day, leading, guiding, protecting, correcting. But you have to set your alarm, get out of bed, put on the tools, pick up the lumber, swing a hammer, get splinters, and break and rebuild a few things. You're going to invest some sweat equity into your house. Some days are better than others. You notice other houses in the neighborhood that are also being transformed by this rebuilder, and it's easy to be jealous of other houses that look nicer or proud as you compare yours to the ones that look less advanced. But the rebuilder shakes his head. Build your own house with fear and trembling. I'll worry about the others. You get hurt, you get tired, you put walls in the wrong place, and you shoot yourself with a nail gun. You question the rebuilder's blueprint. You argue when he shows you something that's not up to code. It turns out you had built your house on a terrible foundation. I mean, who chooses a lot full of shifting sand instead of bedrock? He takes care of that too. One hot day as you're dumping water over your head and wringing out your sweat-soaked shirt, you ask a question you've been wondering about for a while. What happened to your hands, to your side? And you've got a lot of scarring on your back. Construction accident? Uh, construction, yes. Accident, no. It was all part of doing my father's business. Oh, I didn't think construction was that rough. What exactly was your business? He smiles. You. You were my business. I've come to bring you life. To save you from death means another must die. That was your wages. That was your debt. And then it was mine. This, and he held up his hands, this is a sign. All of my bruises, the price for your sins. There will be others who tell you they too rebuild lives, and they're actually pretty good at temporary fixes. A, a good coat of paint can cover up a lot. But they didn't pay your debt. 
They didn't stop the foundation from sinking. They can't free you from death. The only true rebuilder will be known by his scars. So you died to pay for my debt, but you're standing right here in front of me, clear as day. Indeed, the rotten embrace of death looks hopeless to you, but not to me. Death holds no power over me. I took your landlord's inevitable beating. I took all the dead ewes on my back and carried them to their place, and I came back from death's clutches to offer you this gift. We stand quietly for a while. That's, uh, that's quite a gift. Thank you. He winks and slings his tool belt around his waist. It's what I do. And we continue building. You occasionally find your old landlord crouching outside your door, wondering if he can hang out for a while. Take a break, he says. Don't take life so seriously. Some days you actually invite him in and you hang out. And it's fun for a while, but it never ends well. You feel worn down again, almost as if your dead self was back, hand on your shoulder, whispering emptiness and loneliness into your ear. Your landlord always ends up roaring through the house, punching holes in the drywall, unfastening pipes, taking a jackhammer to that new foundation, basically trying to demolish everything. But the rebuilder helps you resist, and the old landlord has to leave. More than once, he's, the rebuilder has caught one of your old dead selves trying to sneak back in. He picks him up by the collar and he throws him to the curb. You apologize to the rebuilder when this happens, and he hugs you. He doesn't yell because his forgiveness is a gift too. You spend days, weeks, months, it turns into years, cleaning up this mess. The rebuilder's faithfulness and patience is amazing. He constantly reminds you of his promise. He will continue what he started. You pick up all the stuff you can. The rebuilder gets the places you can't reach and corrects the damage beyond your ability. He helps you make a plan to resist and avoid this situation the next time. There are some days that you wonder why the rebuilder even puts up with you, but he never leaves you on your own. He remains true to his word. He holds you to the code, but he patiently helps you when you miss the mark. He teaches you how not to shoot anyone with the nail gun. You know you're in this together, that he is for you, that he will restore you and help you even when you're at your weakest. So every day you arise and build, and you find increasing satisfaction in the affirmation of the rebuilder and the pleasure of a job well done. Chapter 5, Rebuilt and Alive. It's not all work. He fishes with you on still waters. You shoot hoops at the YMCA and join friends at Buffalo Wild Wings for March Madness or go to Johnny Lang concerts and Ohio State games, which he seems to really, really enjoy. <laughs> Being around him restores your soul even while your calluses thicken. You realize that you're absorbing his ideas, his language, his priorities, his way of living abundantly. Others have been joining you at the restaurants and at the games. Some still bring their dead. Some have been set free. Some still live in shacks. Others are working with the rebuilder on their mansions. The rebuilder welcomes them all. He didn't come to condemn the dead to their bare, cold shacks. He came to save them and to rebuild their lives. You invite even more to hang out with you. Some do, some don't. You never stop inviting. The rebuilder never stops offering his gifts of free inspections, free debt cancellation, and free rebuilding. Slowly but surely, 
Your house is becoming the kind of mansion that showcases the glorious power of the rebuilder. You find that you easily congratulate others whose houses are flourishing, and you compassionately help neighbors who are struggling. You begin to notice that you have your own growing history of scars that you got from the hard work of helping your neighbors. Their houses take a toll on you. You often walk away with something broken, something the rebuilder mends when you get home. Increasingly, when you share the occasional supper of bread and wine, you begin to think that when he says broken and spilled out as he passes a hand-torn hunk of bread to you, that this is about more than food. Do this in remembrance of me, he always says. And one day, as you hobble yet again toward your neighbors, you realize this is exactly what's happening. The blueprint for your own house and the houses of others makes more sense than it used to. You look forward to your alarm clock. The old landlord still comes around, but more than ever, you see through his lies. He rarely makes it past the bottom step of your porch. Your dead self sits on the curb looking for ways to sneak in, but he fades a little more every day. You notice a new neighbor starting to work on his house. He looks miserable. You take him some water one hot day and find out he found a blueprint. Oh, you say, did you meet the rebuilder? No, says the neighbor. Why would he want to help with my house? It's horrible. I'm going to fix it up enough so the rebuilder will notice. Once I make it good enough, then I'll be ready for the rebuilder. And you say, this isn't field of dreams. This isn't if you build it, he will come. It doesn't work that way. Put your handmade tools away. Stop trying to do it yourself. Unless the rebuilder builds it and gives you his tools, your labor is useless. It's making you angry, it's annoying your neighbors, and you're still sitting on a plot of sand. The next big storm is going to put you back on square one. He turns his back and returns to his work. His dead self hugs him tighter, smirking at you as you walk away. You find that the longer you work with the rebuilder, more than a few know that you're starting to look more and more like him. You're humbled and you're encouraged because your friends used to comment on the eerie similarity between you and your former landlord. This is much better. But they say, what's with all the ongoing work? You told us this was a gift. Oh, don't misunderstand. He paid my debt. He designed my new house. He laid a new foundation. He brought me all the tools. He took my dead selves away. He healed my wounds and works with me at no cost to me, but at great cost to himself. But now I have a new gift working side by side with the rebuilder. I don't deserve to be his apprentice. Who am I to swing his hammer on his house? Who am I to cut expensive trim and build a strong chimney? I brought nothing to this project, but he gives me everything I need to build great things. He's given me far above what I could ask or think. I just wanted to know him and understand what kind of person gives grace to the failures and life to the dead. I just wanted to be near him and be like him. And then all these things... And you wave your hand to show his house, his tools, the work of his hands, the campfire where he sits with his friends, the table where you break bread, the community where you get the privilege of introducing others to the rebuilder. All of these things were added unto me. And this, my friends, is what happens when obedience responds to grace. 
this is life. So that's my overview snapshot of Jesus. That's why we celebrate at Christmas. Because it's more than just a baby being born, which in itself is an amazing thing that God becomes flesh. It's just an astonishing thing. That God becomes one of us and lives with us and dies for us and saves us and offers us life and hope and resurrection. It's it ought to astonish me every day. Christmas is the time where it begins to crystallize. And I, I really hope this Christmas, we were praying before the worship time this morning. It, it is so easy at Christmas time to be distracted by a lot of things. There's, there's, and they're not all bad things. There's family, that's awesome. There's times of friendship. There's all the cooking and eating. There's the exchanging of gifts as we try to bless others with something that we have to give them. There's lots of neat things, but they can begin to overshadow what the heart of this is all about. And there's then lots of other things that are a little more daunting. And that can be the challenges in our life, our sicknesses, our sins, our dysfunction. Um, it can be things at the national or international level. What happens in politics, natural disasters, wars and rumors of wars. We have all these other things that can overshadow the reality that we have someone who offers us hope. And that is not put off by the need to rebuild broken things. And that includes us, which is just beautiful news. So... As we prepare for Christmas Day and as we prepare for Christmas Eve, which is another opportunity where we will focus on Jesus yet again, I just want to encourage us, don't lose sight of what Jesus offers to you. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.